You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 93rd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I have with us a woman who is a daughter, a sister, a friend, and also lives her life using a wheelchair after sustaining a spinal cord injury in a car crash in December 2007 when she was just 21 years old. A year later, she lost her mother and her relationship with her fiance ended. I'm sure she went through some dark times, but I want you to meet her now. In 2018, she became Miss Wheelchair Pennsylvania. She's a model, has appeared in a commercial, was voted WTAJ's Next Star Media's Remarkable Woman in 2020. She's lobbied politicians in Harrisburg and D.C. She is also the co-founder of the South Central Pennsylvania Chapter of the United Spinal Association, and she also has her own Rolling Rainbow Barb YouTube channel. Welcome, Barb Zablotny, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I want to talk to you about how you got to where you are today. What were the things that happened along your journey that made the difference? As you said, I was involved in a motor vehicle accident when I was 21 years old. I hit a patch of black ice, lost control of my vehicle, and hit into some trees. I was not wearing a seatbelt at the time of my accident, which is pretty much the reason why I sustained a spinal cord injury. For those of you that do not know, the spinal cord is one of the only parts of the human anatomy that does not heal itself. So typically, a spinal cord injury is a permanent thing. Needless to say, I'm from a very persistent family and I'm a very hard-headed family. And I'm also like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be that 0.001%. I dedicated a lot of time to false hope of trying to walk again and try to rehab my life back, how I envisioned my life to look, which was walking, the typical social model of life, if you will. As you mentioned, not even a year later, my mom died suddenly in her sleep. My mom was pretty much my main caregiver at the time. Needless to say, that was a hard hit. I think in some regards, losing her was worse than getting paralyzed. I still had the rest of my family, and at the time, my fiancé, Shortly after my mom passed away, my fiance and I separated. That was due to him having severe PTSD from serving in our military. He just kind of refused to help himself, if you will. No hard feelings or anything with him. I went down a path of depression. For the better part of a decade, I spent in false hope and depression. It was clear by year five, I wasn't gaining anything back. I feel like my family in particular was very adamant on me continuing to try to walk, use this electrical stim bike, stand, do all this stuff. And I just knew it's not coming back. You can try all day, but it was kind of a waste of time, essentially. At that point, by the year five, I realized I wasn't getting any better. So then I went through the part of depression of learning how to deal with something that is permanent. Because when you're 21, the idea of permanency, you don't necessarily understand yet. Everything's kind of fixable and whatnot to some degree. The idea of permanency got pretty heavy on me, you know, with losing my mom. 
I went through a weight loss journey in there and it got me a little bit more active in the community. And as I got out into the community more independently without my family with me, I started realizing how people were treating me more. And I'm like, this is bizarre. And I would just post about it on Facebook and my able-bodied friends were like, what, you deal with this all the time? And I was like, man, I just wish I had a platform. I went through tons of medical issues as a result of poor medical care and being screwed over time and time again with medical supplies and everything else. And I always just said, man, I wish I had a platform to warn people about these things. And so I never knew what that looked like. I couldn't envision it at the time. And then my brother's receptionist at his practice found a little tiny newspaper article that said about my predecessor, who later became my predecessor, I guess, was heading to nationals at Miss Wheelchair America that was happening in Pennsylvania that year in Erie. She was representing Pennsylvania. So she was like, you should do this. And I was like, do I look like a pageant girl? I'm covered in tattoos. Yeah, no, thank you. And she's like, you should look into it. So something in my gut told me to look into it. And I did. And I realized it's not a pageant, but an advocacy platform. And while I was reading it, I was like, this is what I've been saying I wanted all along. And so I was like, what do I got to lose? Whatever. I might make a friend, if anything, like whatever. Let's try it. March of 2018, I competed for the title of Miss Wiltshire, Pennsylvania, and I won. And my life has been a whirlwind ever since (laughs) in a good way. That's amazing. And I think you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier that people think of it as a pageant, but it really isn't. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. So it was founded in 1972 by Philip K. Wood. And he was a doctor who worked with people with disabilities. And back in the 70s, pageant circuit was kind of all the rage, if you will. And his daughter was into pageantry and she was a little girl at the time. And he was with his doctor partner and she came into the room and she said, oh, look at me. I'm so cute. Doing a little tiny pageant girl, five-year-old thing. And his partner said, oh, you're the next Miss America. And Dr. Philip K. Wood said, not if she was like our patients. And so that's how they founded Miss Wheelchair America was based off of that because he realized we are capable and beautiful and everything, but we didn't have a platform back then. And back then, ADA wasn't around. Section 504 wasn't around. There was a lot that was behind the times back then. Given that platform to women with disabilities, he was onto something back then. And as the times progressed, so has Miss Wheelchair America. And also, I want to just say there's a difference between Miss Wheelchair America and Miss Wheelchair USA. They are two different organizations. Miss Wheelchair USA is actually a pageant. And Miss Wheelchair America is not. We are judged strictly based on how well we articulate our platform messages and whatnot, not how we're dressed, not our talents, not anything like that, just how well we articulate our message and our advocacy. I like that. You mentioned ADA and you mentioned Act, what, 504? Yes, Section 504, yeah. Section 504. I know that there's laws to protect people with disabilities, but what is your opinion about whether those laws go far enough? The fact that they exist is a blessing in itself. And right now, Section 504 is under attack. It's going to the Supreme Court in December. Essentially, if CVS wins this, it will pretty much erase everything that Section 504 stands for. Hopefully, it's ruled in our favor. Essentially, what they're trying to say that as long as the discrimination isn't intentional, then they should be fine. Because what they did wasn't intentional. 
acts of discrimination are typically never intentional. So that's the whole point. That's what is currently happening now. The ADA, I mean, we're the first generation of wheelchair users that are living in a post-ADA world with independence and, and whatnot. And it's better than what people had before, but it does still need to go further and there needs to be more funding for it. And people need to be more aware and accessibility isn't just for wheelchair users, it's for everyone. That's an interesting thing to say. The accessibility is for everyone. Can you say more about that? What does someone like me need accessibility for, for example? Everyone's going to acquire disability, whether temporary or long-term, and one that'll affect you at some point, somewhere. So you're already going through a lot at the time. Why are you going to have your life made harder due to lack of infrastructure and accommodations? But second, I see people out with rollators who are elderly. I see people who are pushing baby strollers in the middle of the road people rollerblades, bikes, whatever. These infrastructures are good for everyone and they're important for everyone. That's why it's important for everyone. And again, everyone is going to acquire disability. It's just a matter of when. And the goal is that you live long enough and you're going to get a disability if you live long enough and need these accommodations anyways. I hear that. I know I mentioned to you, I had a very temporary disability when I had an accident with two broken legs and I was in a wheelchair just temporarily. And one of the things that absolutely blew my mind is when I went to my orthopedic, the restroom in his waiting room didn't accommodate a wheelchair. I couldn't get in it. It was just crazy. In an earlier conversation that we had, I mentioned handicapped parking and you told me, no, 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 no. That isn't what you call it. What is the proper term for what many of us have called handicap parking in the past? It's accessible parking. The term handicap, I wrote an article on it. I don't know if you want to link it to whatever you do on here, but it kind of briefly describes why. So the very definition of handicap essentially says something to the effect of making progress and improvement difficult or something to that effect. If the environment was accessible, my progress and improvement wouldn't be difficult. The definition of itself is kind of backwards, but the legend, and essentially it's a legend and it's what people say, the term handicap is rooted in essentially begging. Before there were safety nets for people with disabilities, there wasn't always social security, there wasn't always accessibility, there wasn't anything like that. So you were just kind of locked at home and you had no way of income. So people would take to the streets with a cap in hand, asking for handouts. And obviously begging isn't necessarily seen in a favorable light. That's also where the term is rooted in negativity as well. That's really good to know because I don't think anyone, anyone at least that's listening to this podcast is not looking to be offensive to anyone with disabilities. And I know another change that I've become aware of is we don't talk about being disabled. We talk about a person with a disability. So the personhood comes first, not. So let me speak on that a little bit. Um, That's rooted in ableism. When I speak about everyone else, I will say people with disabilities, but when I'm speaking about myself or my friends or whatever, I'll say disabled folk, disabled person, because I do identify as disabled. It's in every thought of my day. It's in every aspect of my life. It's intertwined in everything that I do and say. For me to not acknowledge that as part of my identity is just 
ridiculous. Of course, I'm a person. Um, but the thing is, people want to try and overlook my disability. And my disability is a very important part of me and who I am and my lived experience and how I perceive the world. I personally would rather people refer to me as a disabled person. But when I speak to large groups and stuff and audiences, I will say people with disabilities because there are some people who may not choose to identify as that. I don't get offended if someone does that first. It is the more safer route. But typically, if someone's integrated into the disability culture, they will probably know the difference between identity first and person first language, and they can let you know what they prefer. But if you are talking to someone like that, if they say that, please do not correct them and say, you're an able-bodied person. And you're like, don't call yourself a disabled person. I'm like, who are you? I've had that happen or I'll call myself crippled and I have able-bodied people that are telling me not to call myself that. And I'm like, if you look at the definition, it really does define me. I don't have use of my limbs. So I'm owning that term and that's what I prefer to call myself. If that's what someone is identifying as, just respect it. Don't try to correct them. But if you're speaking to an audience and stuff, person first is the safe route to go. I would say, yes, you want to see the person first, but you also want to acknowledge that disability is there. You don't want to pretend it doesn't exist because it's a very important part of that person's perception of life. That's really fascinating to me because you call them able-bodied people from your perspective. There's a lot of white people who say they don't see color. And yep. People of color are rather offended by that. Many are, yep. not everyone is, because it is a huge part of their identity and it's an identity that they're proud of. It's not something that they want to be overlooked. I'm happy that you brought that up. That's an important point. And also the point about everybody is individual in what they want and their preferences. While I love doing these diversity podcasts, I always want to point out that it's not meant to develop stereotypes about an entire community, right? Because we can't yep. say what a whole community of people prefer. Yep. We have to get to know the individual, which brings me to another question, Barb. I was looking at your link tree and some of the information that you have out there on Instagram, and it's quite extensive for anybody that wants to learn more about Barb. There is a lot of information there. <laughs> One of the things that you spoke about in the video where you say people, well-meaning, I'm sure people, when they see you getting in or out of a car, they, they offer to help you. When what you really want is for someone to see you as a capable, independent woman and just see you and ask, how are you doing? Not, yep. can I help you? That can be offensive yep. to you. So could you say more about that for our audience? Oh, Yeah. I always call it helpful ignorance and the path to hell is paved in good intentions. Actually, when they do this, it can actually be dangerous. I'm going to speak about this on a woman front. As women in a parking lot, as you know, typically already on guard in a parking lot, we're always aware, we're freaking out because you hear these stories of women getting abducted and mugged, whatever have you in parking lots. And so women in general, when we're in a parking lot, we're already you know, so now take that idea and I'm in the process of transferring, which is me at my most vulnerable position because I do not have a way to get out and get away. I am stuck right now in a vulnerable position. And typically it is older men 
white men <laughs> that come up and they just start grabbing the chair. They just start running towards me. And when they try to yank the chair away from me, it gets dangerous in the fact that I can fall. And when I fall, then I'm going to have even more issues. And what people don't understand is this wheelchair is my body. So when you touch it, you're touching my body. I've had guys, older men come up in a parking lot, start pushing me. And I'm like, can you please stop? And they're like, no, I'm helping. I'm like, no, you're kidnapping me. You cannot move my body from point A to point B because you wanted to move this way. No, I choose that. I have the ability of my body autonomy to move the way I want to. Don't just assume because I'm moving slow or I look like I'm struggling that I am. Some days I might just be moving slow. There's people I know that are able-bodied who move slow too. They're just having a slow days. And I feel like all eyes are on me every time I transfer. And people, they'll come up and say, do you need help? And I'll say no. Then they'll just watch me. And they'll wait for one little mess up. And then they're lunging and they're asking to help. And it's just like, no, leave me alone. Like that's literally like someone going up to you in a parking lot and picking you up, like scooping you up and then saying that they're going to put you in a car. Like, no. Typically, what I say is, if you would help an able-bodied person with this task, then go ahead and proceed to help with the task, such as holding a door open, grabbing something on a shelf, things that I did for anyone when I was walking. I, you know, would help people with those things. And I would just hold the door open. Now, when you hold the door open, make sure you're out of the way of the wheelchair, or I'm going to probably yell at you for being in the way. <laughs> um, but that's not that I'm not appreciative. It's just now you just made this 10 times harder for me and I could have opened it and got to the door quicker. When people look at me, their first idea is you're not capable of getting into the car. You're not capable of just doing it. I mean, why would I be relying on some random stranger in a parking lot to come and help me anyways? If I needed that, I would have brought them with me. Meanwhile, I'm transferring out of a driver's seat of a nice Subaru vehicle. Pretty sure that I'm capable of handling this on my own. Just because it looks different doesn't make it wrong. Just because I might be moving slower doesn't make it that I need help. If I need help, I will tell you I need help and I will ask for it. I am capable of asking for help. Little do people understand that, but I know they mean well. But if you ask and I say no, please respect it. Don't keep going. Are you sure? Are you sure? Or stand there giving me the test of just waiting for a mess up. It's maddening. <laughs> it's maddening. I have to prepare every time I'm out in public. When you say you just want someone to see you and ask how you are, do you find that people, when you're in a wheelchair, people don't really see you? Yeah, people don't see me. That's typically part of the reason why I'm in bright colors. My chair stands out. I kind of force them to see me because if you can't stand up, stand out. And so I make sure I completely stand out. They are forced to see me, I think, because of how I dress, how my chair is. And even then, they'll still ignore me. They will talk to, say, my sister over me. She's right there. They'll hand my sister a receipt of something I just paid for, hand her my stuff after I just paid for it. People just don't want to see it because I think it makes them uncomfortable because they just don't know how to talk and handle it. They just have never been taught. Yes, I have a disability, but I just want someone to look me in the eye, smile and say, how you doing? And if I let me go, you know, I'm doing great. 
okay, like have a great day. Keep moving. when I was able body, you'd pass someone and they'd do that smile. Hey, have a great day and keep moving. They never stopped and gawked and grabbed and asked questions that were personal. And it just was a very humanized experience. And then when you do that, if I do need help, you just made yourself someone that is seeing me as a human. I'm more likely to ask you for help if I did in fact need it. That's the best way I always say to go about if you're going, should I help? Shouldn't I help? Should I say something? Should I not? I don't want to seem like an asshole for not helping. They're worried that they're going to be perceived by other people as an asshole for not helping someone. And it's funny because I have friends who will come and we'll meet up and they'll be standing out waiting for me to get my chair out and they know not to touch anything. And they're like, I really feel like an asshole now. Everyone's just watching me stand here looking at you and I'm not helping. And I'm like, well, they're the assholes for assuming I need your help. <laughs> Depends how you want to spin that. But that's typically what I think a lot of it is, is they don't want to be perceived as this horrible person for not helping the wheelchair girl out. And that's it. There's a word that I kept hearing when I was reading about you, and it was independence. It's that you're on this road and this path to independence, and you want to be capable of doing things yourself. Where are you on that road right now? It's still a journey, but I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel more and more. I see things coming together. I see the path that I need to continue on. I see the puzzle pieces I need to put together to continue that path to be more independent. I'm getting there. It's a journey that doesn't happen overnight, but I definitely can see that it's a plausible scenario now. Okay. The last question I have for you is if you had the opportunity, and I imagine you do get the opportunity, to talk to able-bodied people about the things that they may do or the things that they may say or the things they don't do and don't say that could be particularly painful to someone in your situation, what would you tell them? Where do I even start? Honestly, the thing about Miss Wheelchair Pennsylvania, it's made me aware of so many things that don't always directly affect me. The one woman I mentored, Miss Wheelchair Pennsylvania 2021, she has a service dog. And when I go out with her into public spaces, it hurts my head. But grown people are screaming, Poppy, Poppy, oh, I know I'm not supposed to touch, but I need to. He's so cute. And I just, my head hurts. If you see an actual legitimate service dog out, it's invisible to you. You don't even acknowledge it's there. Does that affect me? No, it doesn't. But it affects her life completely. You just pretending that dog is invisible will make all the difference in her world. And not putting a vest on that you bought off of eBay on your service dogs, quote unquote, that you trained would also help. A thing that people don't understand is that if one of these people's dogs that they're dressing up as a service dog attacks her $50,000 trained dog, that's a legitimate service dog, she's forced to retire this dog. And now she lost her independence. In a lot of cases, her not her case, but in a lot of cases, these dogs are literally a life or death situation. If this dog is distracted and misses an oncoming seizure or a blood spike or blood sugar spike or an allergen, someone could die. And people don't understand. You don't know what this dog is there for. You need to respect that. 
I just think of that and I'm just like, why do people not know this? I feel like it's common sense. You just don't take your pet out. If your pet's out of control, just keep it at home. Yes, I would love to take my pets everywhere with me too. I love them too. No one may know, but I was a vet tech before I got paralyzed. I love animals just as much as the next person, but these dogs and other animals are specialized and trained by actual people that this is their job. For me, that's one of the things, does it affect me? No, but it affects a lot of people. And that's one thing that drives me batty every time I'm out with her is just how people are with it. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough. Another thing is everyone's like, oh, treat people the way you want to be treated. I'm starting to wonder if that's the wrong advice to give because you might want to ask how this person wants to be treated because how I want to be treated is going to be different than how you want to be treated. I may be treating you the way I want to be treated, but that's not what your vibe is. So I think that's another thing. I just think people also don't understand the difference between equality and equity, especially in the disability space. And I'm coming from a privileged white standpoint. If I'm dealing with all these barriers and issues every day, it's only 10 times worse for the people in the other intersectionalities of the disability experience. And so I would 100% also have people try to understand that difference between equality and equity as it pertains to disability. Right. So when you talk about intersectionality, I think there may be some people at least listening to this podcast that may not understand what you're saying. Could you say more about that? Yes. As I said, disability affects everyone at some point in time. Disability is one of the only marginalized groups that you're not always born with. You can acquire it. As a result, it affects people of all races, all gender identities, all types of backgrounds, all socioeconomic statuses. And so as a result, those are the intersectionalities of the disability experience. I can't speak for all disabled folk, but I can speak on my experience as a white cis female, and I can tell you the issues I deal with and the oppression I deal with. And so that makes me go, wow, what happens when you throw in some other intersectionalities into this equation? What happens then? That's the troublesome part to me because the people from those intersectionalities of the disability experience do have a harder hand. To be a cis white male disabled is way easier even than being a cis white female disabled. You can tell the difference in both experiences and how drastic they are when you talk to one another about it. Obviously, everyone's different. But everyone has different barriers. And again, I can't speak for all disabled folk, but that's kind of where I think a lot of people don't realize how disability affects every intersectionality there. Great. Thank you for that. I'd just like to ask if you have anything that you'd like to say in closing. If anyone wants to learn anything more, I mean, I feel like I really talk, you know, my posts on my Instagram, Facebook and stuff, touch on these things a little bit. The girls from Miss Wheelchair, Pennsylvania, they touch on these things on their posts as well. We try our best to advocate for various things within the disability spectrum. If you want to follow along, you can learn more about it if you're interested in the disability experience. If you are wondering how to refer to people with disabilities, a great book that I would recommend written by a friend of mine that I met right before the pandemic hit. Her name is Emily Lindo. She recently released a book called Demystifying Disability, 
She does a phenomenal job breaking it all down and making it digestible and easy to understand for people. Um, if you are questioning how to address people with disabilities or learning more about the whole disability culture overall. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. I will put your links to Instagram, Facebook, YouTube in the show notes, as well as a link to that book of Emily's. So thank you so much for those resources. That's wonderful, Barb. I want to really thank you for joining us today, Barb. It has been a pleasure and I've learned a lot from you and I'm sure our listeners have also learned a lot from you. I appreciate your openness and your willingness to talk about some tough topics. So thank you so much for that. Of course, it's my pleasure. And I'm grateful you allowed me to be part of this podcast. The pleasure was all mine. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking with Shruti Takwani about being a sibling of a person with a disability. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.